Well, good evening, everybody out there in Crosstown land. This is Gene Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And um, I have two really, I, I know I say this all the time, but I work hard at making sure that I have people of interest on my show. And the gentleman we're about to talk with, Julius Kimbrough, is executive director of the Crescent City Community Land Trust. I said that really fast. We'll say it slower. Um, and then following him is Tina Freeman, a photographic artist who has done a remarkable show that uh, connects icebergs and swamps, um, if you know what I mean. But we'll get to that um, in the second part of the show. Um, I think um, I was really intrigued about having Julius on because he's essentially in the business of doing things where other people don't want to do them. <laughs> Is that one way to say it? So, I mean, he's, he's a not-for-profit, in a sense, real estate developer, but not the kind of guy who's out there to make a killing. He's more like he's trying to help the rest of us kind of be able to live in our city. Yeah, I appreciate that introduction, Gene. Uh, I've never heard my work uh, positioned quite that way, but... Hey, it's a first evening for everything. Uh, Crescent City Community Land Trust, CCCLT for convenience sake. Some people say triple uh, CLT or triple CLT. Yeah, that's it. Um, we are, as you say, we're a nonprofit affordable real estate developer. And what makes us unique, there are a number of nonprofit real estate developers in the city of New Orleans, and they all do great work. Uh, many of them have, I would guess, uh, about 10% of the housing rebuild since Katrina has been in the nonprofit vein in the nonprofit community How, did here. Did you say that again? I would a guess. Third? No, no, about 10%. Oh, That's 10. just a rough okay. number that I yeah. am guessing from data deep in my head. Mm-hmm. And um, we are a different nonprofit developer. We are a community land trust. And what that means is. Uh, when we develop affordability, it is permanently affordable. And so 99 years is the maximum by law that a contract can be created for in this country. And so we create 99-year leases, 99-year compliance periods when we do affordable real estate. And, and let me just stop you there because something that actually shocked me because I didn't know um, that this was common, that the provisions on many of the properties that we think of as, as low-income – started that way, but reached a certain point, and in one case I know it was only about 15 years before it had to become market rate. And so a lot of people in this one particular project I know of in Mid-City, people had to leave. They couldn't afford market rate. I was shocked at that, quite frankly, and don't even understand how a law could be developed that would do that. Why? Why bring people into a situation that they can afford and then just push them out? I don't get it. Sure. And that is probably one that I should have researched by now. But why so many non so why so many of the affordable properties that are developed in the case of apartments have a compliance period? Uh, I don't know. Uh, the 15 years is a standard compliance period when using the low income housing tax credit. Uh, many of those developments, the, the, the big four as we know them, the redeveloped housing projects in the city of New Orleans, uh, those 
15 years is the, the base for the low-income housing tax credit, but then there are other boxes that the developers typically check, which extends those compliance periods to 30 years. And so many of the projects that we all know, the developments, the affordable housing developments that we know have a compliance period of between 15 and 30 years, and we're talking about apartments. And so that one you were referring to is the American Can Building, and it had a 15-year compliance period, and that compliance uh, period ended, that period of affordability ended about three years ago in the American Can Building. Uh And that was quite a shock for many of us in the community to begin to understand how affordable It's a shock to me. I had no idea that that there were limits, that there was this kind of compliance limit. I had no idea. Yeah, and, you know, some projects come out of affordability compliance or the the affordability period expires, and it may not make sense for a property to go market rate. It may be in a physical location that means that the the best thing the owner can do is to continue to rent it affordably. Uh, That would be a case of what we call natural affordability, where a a, – once a project is out of compliance and yet it continues to operate in an affordable manner, that suggests that the prices in that neighborhood are are such that the yeah. owner continues to operate it affordably. Uh, there is a large uh, development at the corner of um, Dwyer and Morrison in New Orleans East. I'm sorry, uh, Dwyer and Dowman. I can't think of the name of the development right now, but it's a large two-story, a uh, couple of hundred units, and that is an example of a naturally affordable property. In contrast, someplace like American Can, when American Can was developed uh, before Katrina, Mid-City was not a booming neighborhood. The Bayou St. John area was not booming in the way it is now. Gentrification had not set in at the rate that it's set in now. And so the developer wanted public subsidy to get that project underway. And so the subsidy was uh, approved and it was compliant for 15 years. Because rents have gone up so much in the Mid-City area, it just made sense to go market rate for that developer. And so they asked all of the the 50 affordable households that were living in American Can to move out. And They did? They actually asked them all to move out? They did, and they actually gave them financial incentives to go quietly. Um, Thankfully, there was another nonprofit that was willing to step up and do some advocating on – on behalf of and with those affordable families, and so they actually uh, received some money to help move and Who transition was that? themselves. Who was that agency? Another community land trust, Jane Place Neighborhood Jane Sustainability Place. Initiative. Right, JPNSI hmm. and CCCLT are the two CLTs operating in New Orleans, and so the. Oh, Ameri- those are the only two. Uh, we are the only two currently operating in New Orleans. Hmm. As I thought there was, there was another one, wasn't there? No? Okay. No, we are the only two currently operating as CLTs in New Orleans. Okay. And so the, the contrast to the American Can situation and the, the expiration of its affordability period is a new project, uh, relatively new now, two or three years old, that CCCLT is an owner in called the Pythian Building in downtown New Orleans. And the Pythian has 25 permanently affordable apartments out of the 69 residential units in the building. So how many are altogether are there in the building? 69. 69. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you're doing affordable housing in other locations as well, right? That's kind of part of your 
actual menu or your mission is to do affordable housing. And and is that typical of land trusts or not? CCCLT is something of an evolution in the community land trust world. Uh, the typical community land trust focuses on single-family housing developments, and we have a couple of those going in the city right now. Uh, but as an evolution, we also do multifamily housing like the Pythian. We also do commercial projects and the area that we serve, which is called the Livable Claiborne Communities, uh, which is a city-designated area where the city is promoting affordability through a number of means. Uh, and CCCLT is a partner. Uh, the Livable Claiborne Communities, uh, the geographic boundaries are from the uh, – it's along Claiborne Avenue uh, – the parish line at St. Bernard is one end of it in the lower Ninth Ward, and then we come up to Napoleon Avenue. And so a mile on either side of that is the service area that CCCLT focuses on. A mile on. on the either side of it? Of Claiborne Avenue. Okay. Well, a mile that's, on the Riverside wouldn't be a whole mile. Correct. That yeah. is, that, that's a broad area, but those are generally the communities. Which you could that, be if you correct. didn't have a river there. Yeah. Right. Those, okay. are, those are the communities that we want to serve mm -hmm. uh, within that LCC within that livable Claiborne so, corridor. So you're involved with some of the redevelopment on the Lower Ninth Ward on the lakeside of um, Claiborne? Um, yes. Uh, well, I, I, we have 10 houses in the Lower Ninth Ward for sale right now as community land trust properties. They are all, maybe one or two is uh, on the lakeside of Claiborne, but the majority of them are in between St. Claude and Claiborne. I actually meant the lakeside of St. Claude. Okay. So in that area. Yeah. Because I went to um, some kind of a, you know, a, um, a listening, you know, community outreach uh, a meeting that was held. Um, Austin Allen was involved in it some time ago. And uh, they were talking about an area within that. Um, is that part of your project or is that somebody else's? I think that may be somebody else's. Austin mm -hmm. is doing some pretty amazing work, and we are hoping to work with him on a beautification project that we're doing uh, on Alibo Street, right in the middle of where our homes are located. But you asked a really good question earlier. Uh, so the community land trust homes that we are selling in the, nor in the lower Ninth Ward are, the, are a classic representation of what a community land trust does. And so in the lower Ninth Ward, we have 10 houses for sale, uh, with, uh, like most affordable properties, they have income restrictions, and we are selling these homes to people at 80% of area median income and to people at 50% of area median income. Stop right there. Let's just tell people who are listening how they can reach you about those homes. Sure. People can just give me a call at 504-493-7947. I'll repeat that number. Uh, 504-493-7947. And, of course, our website has links, uh, cccLt.org, www.cccLt.org. Okay, I, we'll repeat that number again before we finish, so don't let me forget to, um, uh, in case people need to go get their pen or something. But I, I just want people to know about this. So let me, I see you have a flyer there. Let me take a look at it while we're talking. Sure. Go ahead. Go right ahead. So the development. Oh, nice. So they're kind of like, I would say that looks sort of like a traditional raised Creole maybe house with uh, very nice amenities. Mm -hmm. They're beautiful homes. A little bit of green yeah, around the house. Absolutely. We have done our best to create a quality product for that anybody would be happy to live in. 
Uh, these homes are all roughly 1,300 square feet, two bedrooms. I'm sorry, 1,300 square feet, three bedrooms, two bathrooms. And own your own home for less than you are paying in rent. Yes. <laughs> That's so, a pretty strong sure. and offer. It's, it's the truth. So typically when you look at uh, families who are interested in buying affordable homes, uh, the criteria is that one shouldn't pay more than 30% of their income, top line uh, for that housing right. on a monthly basis. Mm -hmm. And so what we have tried to do is set our prices at 25% of an affordable family's income, given that they are earning 80% or 50% of area median income. And what that means in terms of prices is that the homes range for between $33,000 and $90,000. Uh, and again, that price... That's low. That is extreme. That's affordable housing. That's extreme. True that's very, affordable housing. That's very low, and it's it's low for a number of reasons. One is we are trying to grow the community land trust model here in New Orleans. It also is a reflection of the model, and now it's it's critical that we share with the listeners that the the community land trust is meant to create permanent affordability, and the way that we do that, the CLT stays is your partner for life in this development. When we sell one of our homes, it is not the end of the relationship between the household, who's, the family who's buying, and the community land trust. We literally represent the community. We have a board. I answer to a board of 10 people. They are from all facets of the community. Uh, a number of them actually live in properties that are owned by CCCLT, and so they actually are our tenants. And so we have users and clientele who give us feedback on what we're doing and how to be most effective in trying to promote affordability. That also means that we, the way we maintain affordability is by maintaining ownership. You can think of a community land trust home a lot like a condominium, meaning when you buy a condominium, you own, have the right to the space that you occupy, but then there are all of these shared spaces that you and your other condominium owners own in, in common. And the same is true of the community land trust house. So what are they? So what are people who own these homes own in common? Well, we own the land. The community land trust maintains ownership of the land, and then we sell the improvements, which is the house, to the family, to the household. We in turn give them a 99-year lease. Back to that 99-year thing, which is you know much longer than I'll be around. And that lease is renewable, so a family can renew that lease over and over again, meaning that they can pass the community land trust home onto their children. There is a one-time one income test when a family goes to buy and get qualified for the CLT house, given their income. And then once you have bought the home, it is very much like traditional home ownership. So um, kind of back in the in the days after Katrina when, you know, we were all trying to figure out, okay, how are we, how are we going to come back? Right. Um, and I had, uh, during the 90s, lived in a, a build. I was working for Dinkins in New York and, and also for a, uh, like a bid for Lower Manhattan. And um, the building I was living in uh, was essentially ow, a condo building, I think it was. So I had this notion of what if the people who live on a block all got together and in a sense formed their own kind of community land trust, but I didn't call it that because I didn't know about that vehicle, um, that that uh, approach. Um, 
and and so let's say on a given block there were 10 houses that were occupied by people and 10 houses that were unoccupied for one reason or another. Um, so I thought, why why not create kind of like a condo, a condominium project for that block where the owners of the houses that were occupied um, were able to get together, get loans, do whatever they had to do to own the rest of the block and rent it out or uh, sell the sure. properties. So I would just guess what you're describing, you used to live in in New York, was a co-op building. Co-op, As opposed right. to a, a condominium. Condo. That's right, you're absolutely Co-ops, right. Co-ops, condominiums, community land trust properties are in the same family. We call yeah. that family shared equity models. Uh, Family shared equity. Shared works. equity is the, the, the universe of housing that you're describing that we're talking okay. about. Uh, and in the case of the community, you kind of described that you, you envisioned that is a community land trust. And so what we seek to do in a given neighborhood is to promote long-term affordability, meaning we are attempting to create stability in that community by decreasing the likelihood that as gentrification happens in the older historic neighborhoods of the city, the folks who are living in community land trust property and the prices for that community land trust property will always be low because the CLT works with the community to keep prices low and promote stability. So, so that was part of what I was thinking about was the gentrification issue because that, that hadn't really reared its ugly head uh, you know, like 2008, 9, 10, when I was thinking about it. But it was coming. And yes. I, I've lived in um, New York and, and I, uh, other places I didn't live in, but I knew of this pattern of when the arts artists move into low-income neighborhoods and, and up the ante, so to speak, and just create a more attractive neighborhood. Next thing you know, there's gentrification, often kicking them out. Right. I mean, the That's artists right. come in because it is low income because artists don't necessarily, except for the few that emerge somehow out of the um, the ranks to become rich and famous. The rest yes. of them just suffer. And um, so, uh, you know, they, they wind up getting kicked out, too. But um, one thing, an, another model of health. So the issue is trying to mitigate gentrification. Trying to mitigate displacement. Absolutely. Displacement. I... We, we have interesting conversations around my office about the word gentrification. And when I received my tax bill, I realized I recently I realized that I am a gentrifier in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And by that, I simply mean um, I although I grew up in the neighborhood, I hadn't owned a home in the neighborhood in some time. And so when I purchased at the current market price and I'm putting that market in quotes because we can have a debate about what market is. Uh, but nonetheless, the, compared to the people who'd been living in the neighborhood for 20 or 30 years, the price I paid was yeah. significantly higher. And in, raise, and in raising the average price, I increased the tax burden uh, in the uh, average for price other people, right. for other people. Yeah. And so gentrification. And that's one of the key things that's chased a lot of people out of neighborhoods is the tax bills. And I've heard this for a long time, but there's the recent increases. My taxes, had we not. You know, fought in the senior freeze. I hope. I hope you went and pursued the senior freeze. No, I've been telling my husband about that forever, and and for some reason, I don't. I think we're not eligible. I don't okay. know why. But um, our 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 tax bill was going to go up four times, yeah. four times from what it was before, 
And um, we've lived there since the 70s. So we were way before. Anyway, I guess you might, again, you might call us gentrifiers. Well, you're your husband and you are artists. And so you guys pioneered living in that block where you guys live. And it's you, you, you might fit part of the pattern. But who, but let's, let's, uh, let's have a balanced conversation. Uh, who doesn't want new amenities coming to their neighborhood? Who doesn't want a coffee shop? Who doesn't want a new breakfast place? Who doesn't want a brand new theater on Broad Street? Who lives in this immediate area where we're having this conversation? You Everybody, hit the, you hit the one that I love the most. Right. Everybody yeah. wants those things, but what CCCOT is concerned about, and what I think everybody in the city is concerned about, is displacement. Mm -hmm. And so our work is to mitigate displacement. And the Pythian is an example of the of, of our effort. We have created a building in downtown New Orleans in the heart of. Gentrification. With a fabulous food court that everybody loves. It did win the, uh, I, I heard it, we have recently. The best, won, the best the in best the hall in yeah. the city, right. Yeah. Uh, but in neighborhoods, so the Pythian is a, a unique project for us. It's got a fabulous history, a fabulous location. But the homes in the Lower Ninth Ward are going to be the sort of bread and butter project that we do going forward. We're also working on CLT homes right now in Broadmoor and we are working in Central City. Uh, so let me ask you a question. Sure. I, I'm one of these people who um, wants um, more. I always want more, whatever it is, in any way, in life. I want more. It's very like, American. You know, um, and I worry about uh, these efforts that sometimes seem like pilot efforts that are not really going to attack the issue at the broader level that we need to. So, you know, I grew up studying the FDR days when we took things on big time. Yes. And and now it always seems a little bit like, um, you know, piecemeal crawling. And so I'm not one of these people who keeps talking about how the Democrats need to be more moderate. That's not me. I'm not an old time wobbly socialist either because I just studied too much about all the different isms, and that doesn't appeal to me because that runs the risk of excessive government control, and I'm, I'm not a great fan of that either. I want it, I want it all. I want, I want a little more freedom. I want a little more help from government. I want corporations to care a little more. But, um, you know, I, I just uh, I worry about whether we're tackling some of the major issues that we're dealing with today including this vast change in the economy, which anybody who listens to my show knows that this is my mantra. I talk about it every show. We're dealing with a humongous change in the economy, and we are not really dealing with it. We're dealing with all these little side issues that, you know, walls and, and abortion and God knows what, it, rather than dealing with the core issue. So are, what, are the projects that you're doing enough, period? No. No, they are not enough. And so the city of New Orleans has a affordability plan that the city is working on. Uh, the, the mayor is out right now talking extensively about the infrastructure plan she is putting in place with, to address our drainage and our roads, but there's also a housing affordability component to it. We as affordable housing advocates and developers are excited. We're looking forward to get more, to get more details about the city's plan to tackle affordability. So the community land trust model 
is part of a mix. You know, there are other community development organizations. There is Alembic Community Development. There's Gulf Coast Housing Partnership. There's Jericho Road. They, we Jericho all, Road is still around. Oh, absolutely. Jericho Road is thriving. And we all offer different forms of affordability, whether it is uh, rental and multifamily buildings or it's single-family houses. Uh, CCCLT actually works with developing commercial Afford- commercially affordable spaces. We generally think of what we, we call what we do the third option. The third option being something in between owning a home and renting. And so we say that because we develop the properties, we hold the land, and then we sell the improvement or the house in the case of a single family home, one of our affordable single family homes, and we give that homeowner a lease so that they can have access to the land for 99 years and then they can pass it on to their family. And when you so say so they own the home and they lease the land. Correct. Is that how I should say it? Okay. That is right. And let's let me tie in two concepts. You said you you worry that we're not talking about the right things at the national level and I agree with you and you talk about the changes in our economy. I think for most people, most regular working people, the big change is how difficult it is to become or stay middle class. Most Americans, we think of ourselves as middle class people, and the rising wage inequality is unparalleled in our history, certainly in my life and probably in your life, since the days of FDR, since the days of the New Deal. And what this has meant is that the in New Orleans, what it means is that the cost of housing, both rent as well as home ownership has gone up 50% since 2005 roughly. But wages for the average New Orleanian haven't gone up at all. And if you want to talk about stark differences, we have to talk about race at some level. Uh, In the city of New Orleans, the average white person earns $65,000 a year. The average black person earns about $25,000 a year. Wait a second, the average white person Owns earns er, er, earns sixty five thousand dollars a year. Right. I need to go get food stamps. I'm not earning sixty five thousand dollars <laughs> a year by well, far. That just means you're average. <laughs> but the the <coughs> but the the, the you you're not average is what that means. The but that wage gap. So it's very difficult. In this city, I'm to, sorry, and I I got so hooked on that sixty five yeah thousand. Yeah. What what is the average black family? How person per capita person twenty five thousand dollars twenty five thousand dollars and so a forty thousand dollar gap I don't know how you live on twenty five I it's I mean, very I, I kind of know because you know uh, in my little nonprofit situation <laughs> um, I've learned how to live with a lot less so anyway. it's difficult to separate race and income in this metropolitan area in this city but to the extent that but knowing those numbers what CCCLT is trying to do is promote quality housing in what are considered neighborhoods of opportunity. Neighborhoods of opportunity mean the neighborhoods in the city where investment is happening right now. And again, if we just use this immediate area where you and I are operating, we know there's a new coffee shop that's opened up just down the street. There are two new restaurants that have opened up in the past five years. This neighborhood, this Fairgrounds Triangle area is gentrifying. Broad Street, 
you and I remember, uh, you know, 30 years ago, I, I bought a bike at Gus Bitat on Broad Street. Yeah, we Gus, did too. Gus Bitat doesn't exist anymore, and, and Broad has gone through a long period where it's been in decline. Uh, today, Broad is booming. We have a Whole Foods on one end of it. There's a Southern Rep has moved in. And again, I like I don't know going if I to call the, it booming. Well, I would it's, say it's, it's, it's gentrifying. It's on its way. It's but that's yeah. how it happens. Uh, mm-hmm. Booming is a, just a word, but there's no question that the cost of housing in this area has gone up dramatically, and the way we maintain access to this neighborhood, one of the ways that the CLT tries to do it, is through the CLT single family home, and I, most people are shocked that we are selling homes wherein the buyer does not own the land, but they own the home and they have a lease. The purpose of this is so that we can maintain affordability in sure. these neighborhoods it makes a lot of over sense. time. Mm-hmm. And there are, let me just... Do you mow the lawn? <laughs> no, we, we do not do that part. Uh, it's much like traditional home ownership. But there are four distinct things I'd like to point out that ways in which the CLT home is very much like a traditional home ownership situation. Uh, one of those is where you can begin to build wealth, which is, you know, most Americans pursue home ownership in part as they think about how, you know, the, the average, uh, the biggest asset that most Americans have is their mm-hmm. home. And so people so are worried. So you put money into your home someday, that's equity that you can use to, for one thing, maybe pay for assisted living. Right. When and clearly, you need it. clearly yeah. renters will never have the benefit of putting equity into their home. The CLT home does allow for that. And so when you buy a CLT home, you get a mortgage. Uh, There are a couple of banks in this market who who are willing, who do CLT mortgages. Home Bank is one of those. Hope Credit Union is another. And so is Liberty Bank. And as you pay down your mortgage, you are building equity in your home. The very, obviously the same is true of a CLT home. So as you pay down your community land trust mortgage, and then you sell that home in the future, if you are so inclined to do so, you will have equity in your home. Uh, and if the home increases in value over time, you will get gain on the growth and the value of the home. Uh, that's a second way to build wealth with a CLT home. And at the prices that we're talking about in the lower ninth ward, most people are not going to pay more than $1,000 in mortgage principal, insurance, and taxes. And it is pretty difficult to find a single-family detached three-bedroom, two-bath house anywhere near that anywhere near a thousand dollars in monthly costs where yeah. you can get to downtown in under ten minutes, yeah. which you can on the St. Claude bus or the Claiborne bus, living in the Lower Ninth Ward. Julius, I got to say that I'm uh, very happy that you are here in New Orleans, thank that you, you are doing what you're doing, and I thank you for doing this for the people of the city as opposed to just your pocket. Not me. And um, I urge everybody to call that phone number, check in, 504-493-7947. We're just about out of time. I got another interview that I'm – She's not here, but she's pre-recorded. She's going to come on right after you. But I appreciate it. I want you to come back when you have something, some new – Project uh, We're going to sell our first CLT home in the Lower Ninth Ward in the next month or two, and I'd like to come back and talk to you about Please. that and get some feedback from that homeowner and 
continue our efforts. Bring the homeowner in. We'll bring the homeowner in. That would be great. I'd love to talk to the homeowner too. Thank you very, very much for um, what you're doing and for coming in and talking about it. Thanks a lot, Jean. Have a good evening. And now I'm going to turn this over to um, an interview that I pre-recorded with Tina Freeman, this artist, photographer, absolutely sensational person who's trying to bring home to us the connection between the melting glaciers and the rising water around our swamps and how we're losing our marshes and land um, with exquisitely beautiful pictures that are going to be opening at the New Orleans Museum of Art shortly. So here she goes. I have uh, Tina Freeman with me, who is both an old friend and um, a legendary New Orleans uh, photographer. Actually, um, she's really an international photographer who happens to live in New Orleans. Because I, I never use the word local, because we're not local. Nobody's local anymore. We're, we're, we're international because we are so connected globally, right? Um, who has a, a really interesting and important show opening at the New Orleans Museum of Art on... It'll be open from September 12th until March 8th of 2020. And a great time to check in on um, the opening would be Friday night, which is always that great night. It's, um, I think it's still free, and uh, there's always music and a little bit of food and, and things to drink, and it's just a wonderful... Um, time to be at the New Orleans Museum of Art. It, Wednesdays are free. I'm not sure that Fridays are free, but I don't. I don't know. I, I'm not sure either, but um, I know that it's uh, well worth whatever they might slightly charge. But I think I actually think it is free. Okay. So um, I, I want to kind of start at the beginning because uh, my fam- familiarity with your work includes a phase when you focus on interiors. And, and then you've done so much work on the landscape and ex, you might say exteriors and the environment. Um, but I want to go back to the beginning and I want to ask you, do you remember the first time you ever took a photograph? Approximately? Yes. Um, I had an old box brownie camera and I was with a, a number of friends on a balcony at our house and uh, we were building a, a very small bonfire. Uh-oh. <laughs> and I decided to take a photograph. It was a disaster. It didn't come out. But later on, um, I took some exterior photographs of our, our yard and my dog, and those came out. So I was about 8 or 10 or something. My aunt had given me a camera. And when I was 12, I went to summer camp, and I learned how to use a darkroom. Oh, that was a really important development. Yeah. And that had that had pretty much a lasting impact on you, I would imagine. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Then in high school, there was a darkroom that I didn't know about until my junior year in high school. Uh, and I, no, no one had been using it, so I renovated it, and, and the school helped me buy an enlarger, and I basically spent the last two years of high school in the darkroom. <laughs> Uh, interesting. Was was there a, a person, a teacher, a relative, somebody who inspired you? Or was this something that really just came from inside you? Well, I think it was an important aspect of our family history. My grandfather had done 35 millimeter films oh, of his that. trips out west. 
hunting, mm. hunting. And um, so those were some part of my heritage. Unfortunately, I think virtually every one of those self-destructed because they were on nitrate-based film. Oh, I was just going to ask you, why haven't I seen them? No, it's oh, really sad. No. It's, they had a horrible smell before they just crinkled up and became dangerous because nitrate will self-immolate. Yeah. And um, then my father was very interested in photography, and um, he had a Leica, and I remember going to England with him, and I had my little Instamatic, and I was very disappointed in the quality of my photographs next to his photographs. My photographs were kind of a little bit not out of, you know, a little bit out of focus and not quite as good as his. It did have something to do with the lens and the camera. <laughs> and then um, then I have a, after high school, I went, I only applied to one place, which was Art Center College of Design in Los Angeles, and got in, and I have a BFA in photography. And I graduated in 1972. Oh, so you just graduated when we got here, because mm -hmm. 72 is pretty much when I came to New Orleans. I guess, I guess wow. so. Wow, okay, so I had no idea. I thought you were just um, older. <laughs> not to, not, no reflection on appearance, just, um, you were all, when I first met you, I think you had already opened your gallery. Yes. Uh, so yeah. that had to be like almost on the, on the, um, um, days or weeks or months or that whatever was, after you graduated? No, that was 1974. Two more years, okay. Yeah, and it was not opened very long, maybe two years at the most. Well, that, that takes some work to keep a gallery open, and so um, two years is not nothing in the life of a gallery. Um, how did you become focused on the environment, interiors, exteriors, as opposed to, I, I don't know, what still lives, portraits, uh, many other things that people take photographs of, events and so on. Well, I think five years of living in California, which I was in college for three years and then sort of stayed out there for another two years, really got me interested in the environment. Uh, earthquakes were a huge, huge issue. And... While I lived out there, we had a six-point-something um, on the Richter scale earthquake hit where I was living. I remember waking Ouch. up in the middle of the night, and the whole house was shaking. And so I began to get interested in the environment at that point. Oh. And in fact, I, I had a, a friend who was sort of an anarchist, and he suggested that if one wanted to attack all of the service buildings like the police and the hospitals um, and the fire departments uh, because most of them were built on faults according to him I don't know whether this was true or not all you needed to do was drill water into the faults well does that sound familiar does fracking sound something like that that's right yes so um and this was in the early 70s. So um, then coming back to New Orleans, uh, I had gone through, well, this was before I went to college in uh, 1969, uh, 
Camille hit the Gulf Coast, and I went over there. I was photographing for the Via Corre Courier at that point, and uh, I took a large number of photographs of what was happening there. We literally went over by boat about three days after the storm, and it was really devastating yeah. to see what had happened. You had a home there, too, didn't you? Your family Yeah, had my a home. family, my grandfather bought the property in 1906, and... The piece of property had a lot of buildings on it. It had a house, it had a carport, it had a, a carriage house, it had a spring house, it had a horse barn, and then uh, his pout house, you know, which was where he, he and his friends... <laughs> it's like the she shed on television. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, this. Okay. There was well, my she shed. <laughs> well, this was his pout house and where he would play cards with his friends. That's still standing. Half of that building is the only building that's still standing on this piece of property after two big storms. His spirit was protecting it. I guess. But it's also at the back of the property, so yeah. that helped. Yeah. Um, but And at the same time, a friend of ours, uh, a friend of mine and I were going to check on some friends of hers house that was down the beach from our house. And the National Guard were or people that were dressed as the National Guard, I should say, it probably wasn't the National Guard, were gathering together anything of value and sticking it in front, of, in the middle of the beds. And, and we got there just as they were about to make off with these beds for its full things, and we couldn't do anything with it because we were on a boat. Ooh. So we, when we got home, we called them and told them what was going on. But so... Looting was going on back then, too. Mm -hmm. So, actually, that reminds me that uh, once when you came to um, our little branch house in the woods and you looked at some wicker furniture I had, you said, Man, that's awfully familiar. <laughs> <laughs> you thought, maybe, because we bought that at the flea market in New Orleans. <laughs> Who knows <laughs> where it came from? So, but um, then you, you, you start, you, you did a lot of interior work for a while, and that mm -hmm. was, of course, um, partially um, your work. So that was, um, you know, I won't say job, but it was... It was, it was jobs, okay. yeah. It was jobs. Because uh, it, it got me away from black and white work. I was primarily working, my personal work was in black and white. And then when I started doing commercial work from magazines in the 80s, they were interested in color. So that's when I really started working in uh, transparency, uh, doing a lot of transparency work. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, how did um, your, your, your search uh, um, in, in, in for what you wanted to say in photography uh, develop out of that? And I, I have to imagine that living in New Orleans, again, this is such a powerful environmental place. And, and of course, all the surrounding area in Louisiana and in Mississippi, uh, too, um, how, how did um, growing up in this this universe, this place, affect your work? And then, what was what triggered you taking it so much more seriously and really trying to communicate about um, the dangers to the environment, which is a, a theme in the present show that's about to open? Well, you saw the loss that took place with Camille. Um, I, at least I saw it, and so that was the beginning of of being uh, aware of what, of what was happening in the wetlands. And as a child, I'd gone out fishing 
both at South Pass and in Louisiana marshes with my family and my brothers. Um, and I really loved being out there and uh, was very aware of what was happening. I mean, at night you'd sit on the boat and see the gas flares from the, the, gas, you know, the oil and gas wells. Uh, so you knew that was going on. Um, there were, there were, Mr. Go was opened about that period of time, and I remember a disappointment in that it did not fulfill its promise. It was just really not necessary. And that was in the very first days of it being open. Uh, and tragically, it, it, it was open way too long. It shouldn't have been open in the first place. Uh, so these kind of things were there, um, and my love of the wetlands were there, and then also going out duck hunting. I never, I never, I can't hit the broadside of a barn with a shotgun, but um, I love being in the marshes in the mornings and seeing the birds and what's going on out there, and and that's what started the photographs of the marshes, was um, going out on a duck camp uh, trip on New Year's Eve. It was 2013, 2012, 2013. And on New Year's Day, we went out, uh, and it was a beautiful, misty, just overcast, moody day. And the photographs that came from that day of photography were the beginning of all of the photographs of the wetlands and where I really saw the connection between the ice and the wetlands, both in their ethereal beauty um, and physically their connection because of ice in two physical states. And the ice um, melting in, in the... Um Arctic regions uh, and the effect that it's having here. So that's actually the focus of the show that's opening. So let's go to that. Let's talk about okay. the show and, and, and what um, people can expect to see um, when they go. I, I, I've seen some of your photographs of glaciers. They're very, very powerful. Well, thank you. Um, I've made pairs. Each pair has one image of ice. And it can be, it could be an iceberg, it could be an, a waterfall that's frozen, it could be sheets of ice over the water. Yeah, lot, lots of ice over the water. And then one is of the Louisiana wetlands. All of the images are of Louisiana. So I've gone from a very broad topic, meaning the Arctic, Antarctica, the Arctic meaning Greenland, Spitsbergen, Iceland, um, and then just focusing on Louisiana. And a lot of those images were taken just outside of Morgan City. So I began to see both, both structural and visual connections. Sometimes it's a, it's a, it could be color, sometimes more often it's shape um, or, or the structures themselves between the two places. 
so and i worked on this for a long time and about two years ago the university of louisiana lafayette press was ready to go ahead and publish and that's when noma both susan taylor and russell lord came and said because they were very aware of the work um russell had helped me a lot with some of the pairing and um said that they wanted to do the exhibition and it takes a museum a couple of years to get an opening so we put off the publication for two years and noma um, co has co-published the book with the university of louisiana lafayette press to go with the exhibition how does it feel um now to be putting this forward to a broad audience and not just your art followers and friends. I'm hoping that the broad audience sees the beauty in what is our earth. And the, that love of that, of our planet, which gives us everything we have, uh, to sustain life is at risk and I'm just trying to seduce people with that beauty so that perhaps there'll be a thought as to where we're going right now and maybe we can do what needs to be done to mitigate some of the damage that's being done. So, um, on the one hand, uh, it's hard right now to pick up a newspaper or watch cable television and not uh, be confronted with um, the, the, the decline of our, of our Earth and, and the very scary prospects that are, are being discussed in research papers, but um, also just from kind of very uh, um, broad statements to very microscopic uh, little focus points on um, a species that's dying away, that's disappearing. Um, and the only uh, thing that, I, that um, is a source of optimism and hope is um, our citizens who have, in the first place, uh, sparked the whole green movement and ha has come from being kind of a uh, esoteric campaign to a very broad one. And so despite the actions of really totally retrograde people at the federal level, um, a lot of people are fighting for doing the right thing. From a, a neighborhood person, I, I mentioned to you earlier, Angela Chalk in the seventh ward, uh, developing a, a green block so people could come and see how to do it. How do you do rain barrels? How do you do swales? You know, how do you collect uh, water on your property? How do you break up concrete and have dirt that'll absorb so much more? Um, and so that happens at the same time, of course, with these absurd um, deregulations that the president is doing, despite the corporations that he's affecting, saying, no, no, we don't want to stop controlling the emissions from our cars. Oh, well, I, I thought you were going in the direction of the methane. We were, just last Saturday, um, I was down by Mardi Gras Pass, which is the 
the most northern natural breach in the Mississippi River since the river has been so strongly uh, levied. Yeah, yeah. and um, it's just below Bohemia, which is just below Point Alahash, and it's so heartening to see what's going on back down there. The, the amount of marshes that are being built and the beauty of those marshes is just makes you makes you so happy and 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 knowing that actually nature will be okay in the end if if it can just get around our messing with it um, because nature seems to know what to do so so I, I'm not that familiar with what you're speaking of are the are the marshes coming back on their own or is it things that are being done by um, environmental groups to help that along? I know in this particular location, um, the river on its own on Mardi Gras Day 2011 made a breach in the levee and because of that breach, which was only seven years ago, hundreds of acres of rebuilding has taken place in the marshes. There's very healthy marsh grass down there. There are willow trees that are 15, 20 feet high um, on the, in the banks. Uh, there's sand on the bottom of some of the waterways, just solid sand. I mean, look at the beach at the fly. Wasn't that amazing to see? So that's the kind of beautiful sand. I, I didn't see the sand, but I certainly could feel it with a pole. That's, that's the river has um, settled in the bottoms of these these canals. It's it's amazing what the river can do if we just let it do it. But where I was going with that, because of the methane, is we saw two in the very short period of time we were there. We saw two um, leaking wells. Uh, leaking natural gas yeah, in the same area. Mm -hmm. You could hear them leaking, you could smell the leak. And that's exactly one of the, um, uh, one of the uh, issues that the president has said, oh, we don't have to worry about that anymore, exactly. just let it happen. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's, it's absolutely insane what's happening. And, and, and again, there's always that other uh, strand um, in, in, in life and history, and um, the reaction to that uh, and the resistance to that is going to be substantial. Well, it was, it was very telling that the larger oil companies who are dealing with this, and they were perfectly happy to deal with it, and they didn't need a change. But um, it's, he was just protecting the little guys. And one of, one of the leaking wells we saw was just a dump for a derelict pipe. Um, and apparently that pipe has some radioactivity to it, and it would be very expensive for them to properly dispose of it, so they just kind of leave it in this one area. I'll just say the birds enjoyed it. There were lots of birds hanging around and <laughs> roosting and things like that. Mm. Yeah, birds and fish seem to um, have a, a, a peculiar relationship with some of that equipment out there. They say that, you know, a lot of the... Um, wells, a lot of the um, 
platforms attract fish. I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah. No, no. Those are those are artificial reefs. I mean, they're great places to go fish. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, are, are some of these marshes, these beautiful marshes that are coming back, are those in the show also? Actually, when I went down there about eighteen months ago, it wasn't nearly as evident as it was this trip. But so that's a future show. Could be, um, but. Near Morgan City, there's a lot going on there. That's a real dynamic um, building there, and actually, Ducks Unlimited has helped that particular duck camp uh, reclaim some wetlands for the ducks. So, so what's your what's your feeling about um, after the show? What's next in your and, and and how how has your experience photographing these environmental um, sites, both the scary ones as well as the reviving ones, um, affected what else you do in your life? I mean, are you engaged in environmental activism in a sense in, in other ways, or are you counting on your photographs to tell the story? Well, I could probably have another 25 minutes to go through that, but um, I renovated my family house in right around 2000, and we put in ground source heat pumps there. We made sure that we did not increase the amount of non-permeable surfaces. In fact, we took up the, the concrete in the driveway and put a water permeable surface there. And um, we put solar panels on the house. I've been driving either a hybrid or an electric car for most of the last 10 years. Um, for a long time, I didn't travel at all, so my first trip to Antarctica was kind of a shock to me because it used up so much carbon to get there, but I tried to mitigate my carbon usage with planting trees, you know, giving money to something like the Nature Conservancy that plants trees, and I mean, that's not the same, but it, it at least it does something. Um, and I, I've been writing papers on the environment Ooh. since probably uh, approximately 2003. Um, I was on a national committee, and I wrote four times a year on toxins and air quality, and then I wrote on endangered species. Altogether, that was six years of work. And now, about every other year, I write a paper on some aspect of the environment, like the Keeling Curve, which is uh, Dr. Keeling was the first to um, document the cyclical nature of the increase of CO2 levels um, and various other subjects along those lines. We're getting close to um, our time limit, but uh, I wanted to ask you, was anybody that you have read, uh, my husband often refers to Rachel Carson as one of the people that really impacted his thinking. He, his work, his artwork is uh, also uh, addresses um, the environment in a, in a slightly more whimsical way when you plant a, a big lifeboat on Julia Street. <laughs> it's um, a little bit, uh, not tongue-in-cheek, but... Not really, no. It's it, it could be useful. I mean, it was, it was right around the time of um, possible... One of our floods. So, and, yeah, and our and floods. The, and the floods, that's yeah. right, and the floods. So it could have been 
I mean, I, I was imagining people jumping on the lifeboat in the middle of Julia Street. <laughs> right. Well, um, we did sign quite a few people up. You know, it has 74 <laughs> seats. You can sign up to be in the crew of the lifeboat. Um, I think we're about 50-some people out of the 70 seats. I'll keep that in mind. But um, uh, thank you for what you do, uh, Tina, and, and how much you care about this. And um, I want to make sure that everybody makes a point of getting out to see this show. Noma has been doing some great shows lately. They've got some other exhibitions up right now that I really love the identity exhibition, and they have got a landscape show that's up as well, um, more traditional. Um, so I encourage everybody to come out, and the opening again is on the 12th, correct? And then yeah, the that first Friday? Day that's open to the mm -hmm. public, and yes, uh, the Friday there will be. And then the 20th, the Friday after the 13th, which is the first Friday, there'll be a panel discussion with me and um, a couple of the contributors to the book, um, uh, a professor at Tulane and uh, a wetlands expert from the National Wildlife Federation. Oh, that sounds great, too. So that'll be on the Friday night in the auditorium. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time Thank to talk you, with us. And um, everybody get out there and see the show. It's, uh, I know it's going to be beautiful. I've seen some of the images, and, but to see them at, in, at the level that they're going to be shown is going to be um, a once-in-a-lifetime. It's going to be really important. Thank you. Thank you. This is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations coming to an end on WBOK, and I will visit with you again next week. Thank mm -hmm. you.